This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Welcome to Headscarves and Good Yarns with me, Amal Abdullahi. The show is all about talking about race, diversity, and everything in between, all in the hopes of empowering a more empathetic Aotearoa. We talk about all these huge life things through the lens of people's lives and stories. I hope every yarn you take a wee gem from it and expands your heart and mind just a wee bit more. Kia ora, alaikum. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Headscarves and Good Yarns. Um, it's been really nice since the last episode hearing your feedback from the episode with Emilani. Um, I'm still buzzing from recording with her. She's such an intelligent woman and I learned so much from her. Um, and like even just being in her class, like I still think about the stuff that I learned and the conversation that we had last episode was really valuable and I thought it was really cool how lots of you guys thought it was um, valuable for you guys too and you took some gems away from you. So yes, still buzzing from the last episode and I wanted to begin this episode talking about Eid. So it is Eid al-Huda on Wednesday, so it's a, a really big celebration in the Muslim community, and it's our second Eid for, oh, technically the first Eid, because it is the beginning of the new Islamic calendar, so, you know, uh, it's a new year in a sense for us, and um, it's a really beautiful time, so in contrast to the previous Eid where it's about um, marking the end of Ramadan, this Eid has the theme, still has that similar theme of giving and sharing and community and being together. Um, but there's also that other theme of sacrifice. So, and the reason why um, sacrifice is a really big theme for this Eid, um, because it was around this time where um, Prophet Ibrahim or um, Abraham in the not the English terms but like the what this, what you would find in, in the Bible I f- sorry I'm forgetting my words at the moment but Prophet Ibrahim he had a dream which he believed was from Allah and Allah was telling him to sacrifice his son as an act of um, obedience and just as about he was or just as he was about to do it in real life um Allah stopped him and and gave him a lamb to sacrifice instead. So the idea is that um, during this feed, animals are sacrificed, but the meat must must be distributed amongst those who are poor or needy or vulnerable. Um, So you kind of give a third to family, um, a third to wider friends, and then a third to those who are vulnerable or... um, yeah needy and it's just a wonderful way of gathering around food and highlighting community and money will be given out as well so it's not just about you know giving out meat um, because I know that doesn't align with every single Muslim person's values like for example I used to be a vegan not so much anymore because um because of my health but it's a whole nother conversation anyways while I was actively a vegan it was actually um a confronting time for me as a Muslim to kind of think about oh well I don't eat meat and here we are sacrificing animals and so I think there are some so I've joined all all these groups at the time for vegan Muslims and you know figured out what other people were during were doing during this time and 
yeah, there were other ways of sacrifice that was done that didn't have to necessarily involve meat. So, you know, just putting it out there that um, sacrificing an animal is not what every single Muslim person does, but it is um, what is generally done um, because of the story of um, Prophet Ibrahim. And so, yeah, there's a more, I suppose, serious tone to it. Um, but in the sense that it's about slowing down and reflecting and kind of reshuffling your priorities, which is amazing boost after Ramadan, because I'm not going to lie, I've just kind of dropped the ball when it comes to praying consistently. So to have Eid al-Hadda not too far um, after Ramadan is quite nice, actually. Um, and also... Eid falls on the 10th day of Dhul Hijjah, which is the 12th and last month of um, the Islamic calendar. So our calendar is based on a lunar calendar. And so after this period, um, we'll be moving into the new Islamic year, which is, um, yeah, just so wonderful and so cool how it's kind of lined up with Matariki as well. So, um, and again, the similar themes of slowing down and you know, reprioritizing and resting and all these beautiful things that I think we need to do more. Um, that's the one, one thing I, well, there's many things, but there's one of the things that I particularly appreciate, appreciate, sorry, about having not just following the Gregorian calendar, but also having the Islamic lunar calendar because it allows time for periods of slowness and resting and there are periods where things are a bit more full on, but you know that there will be a time where it'll be slower and it's socially acceptable to, to slow down. I think when we follow the Gregorian character and calendar, sorry, and this um, modern lifestyle, it's always go, 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 but we don't really take the time out except for like that weird week between Christmas and New Year's. But, you know, every other day of the year, it's all about um, getting as much done as possible. And, you know, you really have to justify taking a break when you don't have to and you shouldn't have to. Um, but rest doesn't naturally come. But I, I really appreciate how the Islamic calendar kind of ebbs and flows with how the moon ebbs and flows which is beautiful and also this is another um, special time because this Eid marks the end of Hajj which is a five-day pilgrimage um, to Mecca which is a very holy place to Muslims and um, you know one one of these days um, Arthur and I and my family will all go to Hajj um, we'll see yeah we'll see what the world would look like after we figure out this whole COVID situation um but it is a very special holy time and you know Muslims from all over the globe um come together for Hajj so yeah I'm really excited for when my time comes but you know even though a lot of Muslims aren't doing Hajj at the moment there's still that still fasting, um, still having that slowness, that reflection, that sacrifice. So yes, very excited for Wednesday and to have Eid prayer with the whole community. 
like literally everyone shows up for Eid like we have to go to a different venue other than the mosque because the mosque can cannot accommodate the amount of people that do come for Eid prayers so it will be um a very special time a very special time and um, the next thing that I want to talk about or something that's been playing on my mind a lot and even more so since my conversation with Emilani is the interconnectivity of just everything um, you know you there have been so many social justice causes that have been very active as of late I've noticed you know every single well maybe my newsfeed is a little bit more tailored because I do actively seek these things but um, I have noticed that you know there are all these individual co-puppers that are very active at the moment and trying to get their um, voice heard and get off the ground and get um, people power behind them and um, I think it's been something that's been wafting around in my head, but it wasn't until the conversation that I had with Emilani where I really have been thinking about it. And there honestly is such a connection between all these different co-puppers and nothing in this world happens in isolation. Um, you know, whether it's the Black Lives Matter movement or Free Palestine or Land Back, which is um, happening right here in, in New Zealand and, um, you know, what's happening with over in Europe with the banning of the naqabs and stuff in France. Like, all of these things, they seem so random and isolated and it seems like an, a, a fight particular to that, you know, geographical region or to that you can kind of put labels on it and put um, limits on it but when you really start to look at it there actually there is a connectivity there because all of these things are kind of arising from the same underlying systemic problems and to to fight for one is to to fight for the other as well and I don't think as a collective we've all kind of clicked onto that just yet because can you imagine how powerful you know we would be as a collective if everyone joined in together and I just want to quickly say I know that there's a space and time and place for these separate co-puppers because yes they do arise from the same systemic problems and structures um but you know everyone has their own place but imagine if we could all support each other still having our own co-papa and fighting the good fight but everyone yeah supporting each other and going to each other's protests and speaking up for the other issues and um having that sense of solidarity i th i think that would be so powerful and I think maybe there are structures in play that dampen um that dampens the connectivity because I think you know if there was too much awareness then there'd be so much power and so I strongly encourage everyone if there's something that's dear and near to your heart well how does that how can you translate that energy into different co-puppers and that doesn't mean being an expert and knowing everything on that particular topic, knowing that 
that you're in the same in the same I'm not going to say I was nearly going to say in the same boat but that's not nearly that's not quite right because not every single issue is in the exact same boat there are different barriers for each co-papa but you know in the same storm anyway so there is that understanding that okay I know that this is wrong and and this isn't right because I'm involved in this co-papa and this is what I see what's wrong and I can see the same thing playing out over there and over there um, and so I yeah, strongly encourage everyone to kind of think about the interconnectivity of everything. Like, for example, um, what has been blowing up on my newsfeed recently is um, the protests that farmers have been having here in New Zealand. And... Um, I'm not 100% knowledgeable on the topic, so if someone's tuning in and um, I've said something wrong, please, please do enlighten me. Um, But farmers are protesting against policies that, um, I don't know, I suppose make that make life harder for them um and so they took their trucks and their utes and they had um a really really big well well the way that the media reported it a really really big um protest but in reality I don't think it was as big as the media reported it to be but anyways from from that protest there was some really yeah disturbing um yeah really disturbing signs and I'll just read some of them to you um if it wasn't for farmers you would be hungry cold naked and sober we are at regulation saturation leave private land alone hands off our land farmers lives matter um, MAGA, which is make Ardern go away, um, government Nazi danger, and it's kind of um, written within the like emergency warning triangle that we often see with our road signs. Um, Jacinda is a communist, oh, I'm not going to say the B word, but the B word. Um, we live in New Zealand, not um, Aotearoa. Stop ramming Māori language down our throat. So there is this rhetoric that is coming through, um, and it's very right-wing. It's very fascist. It's um, and I, I just, for me, all of this screams um, white fragility, all of this screams um, colonialist, mind, uh, colonialist mindset. And when, like, this might seem like, a, oh, I know that not every single farmer thinks this way, and it's not representative of every single farmer. When I but when I think about the fact that this kind of attitude, it's prevalent in New Zealand. It has a platform, and it's not just happening in New Zealand. There's this like mega. Where have we heard that before? Um, it's happening in Europe, and it's happening in America. This um, rise of this right wing attitude, and it's very 
racist it marginalizes indigenous people it marginalizes um just any ethnic person to be perfectly honest with you and it's under the guise of you know this is for the better of the country this is for protection um it outlines people as scapegoats for the problem which what is distracting putting a scapegoat um and you know it's under the guise of you know farmers are protecting their rights for you know the regulation policies and issues but low-key what's happening here is there is a platform for this very scary um right-wing attitude and not only does it that kind of attitude um target our indigenous people but you know it's in the same vein of islamophobia and the fact that you know something like the Christchurch attacks happened and we were also shocked and surprised and then we have events like this where we enable that that rhetoric to breed but that rhetoric is allowed to exist as it is because it's under the guise of farmers protecting their rights but that attitude because it has that association of protection this is you know and farming is such an integral part of the New Zealand culture and identity you can see how people don't question it it can it's silently accepted if you're not aware of it and if you don't openly challenge it and then you can see how this links up with this worldwide um, rise of this rhetoric it actually is quite scary it's you know when we see something like this happening I don't think we should take it lightly it is all connected and then what I also think is very interesting and kind of leads me on to the um, next thing that I want to talk about which is um the importance of history is that you know New Zealand really prides itself on our farming history and our background and you know most of our GDP is based on our exports which is mostly agricultural but a lot of New Zealanders don't know about our history with um, the Pacific and how you know this generational wealth and this agriculture that we currently have is built on the backs of the Moana and I would just like to talk about um, Banaba and the phosphate mining in Banaba so um, the I think yeah Emilani and I briefly kind of talked about it maybe in the last in our conversation um, before this episode um, but Banaba is, a, is an island of Kiribati and um, it's very close to Nauru and um, along with Nauru and Makatea it is one of the um, phosphate rich islands of the Pacific so here we have the Pacific Islands Company that um, identified that Banaba had this high-grade phosphate. And then there was an agreement made 
um, with the Barnabins for this company to have exclusive right to mine for 999 years for 50 pounds a year. And the terms of the licenses were changed to provide for the payment of royalties and compensation for the mining damage. But that amount is like piss poor. So it amounted to less than 0.1% of the profits that the company made um, during its first 13 years. And um, so the Pacific Phosphate Company built the railway and they mined phosphate from 1900 to 1919. And um, in 1919, the governments of New Zealand, so Aotearoa, UK, Australia, took over the operations of the Pacific Phosphate Company. And then this fertilizer was used from 1900 to 1970. Um, oh, the phosphate was used as a fertilizer, but this fertilizer was used in UK, Australia and New Zealand. Um, and so it stripped away 90% of the island surface, which is horrible. So um, the population of Banaba had to be relocated to um, Rabbi Island in Fiji in, with the first wave of um, immigration in 1945, and then again in 1977, 1981, and 1983. Um, and these dates are not that long ago. Like, my parents were alive in the 70s. Um, my, I think, yeah, even well before that, they were alive. Like, this is really not that long ago. Um, and... But after some time, some islanders were subsequently returned to the island, which which, which was after the back end of the end of the mining. Um, so back in 2001, I'm not too sure what the numbers are now, the population was approximately 300. And in 2010, another census was done and the population dropped down to 295. But when you put this in the context that there's globally 6,000 individuals of Banaban descent. That is insane. And during the 70s, um, the Banabans sued the Court of England and Wales, you know, saying that the UK Crown um, owed a lot of money from those royalty payments. Um, but then in court, it was ruled that there were no duties owed because the term trust in the in the mining ordinance 1927 was not used in the technical sense but rather in the sense of unenforceable government obligation so now the claim for the beach to be restored from that 1948 agreement is time barred and so um, is the replanting obligations as well so honestly like when you hear that history you can just clearly see how Bunnabins have been completely screwed over and New Zealand had a role to play in that alongside UK and Australia when they took over the operations of the company. They took over the company in 1919 and um, the mining finished in 1979. So oh, I can't really do maths on the spot, that, but that's roughly 50 years of mining and this fertilizer literally gave life to our land and is the reason why we have the agriculture that we have now so you know then so when you contrast that with the added well this is not representative of every single farmer i'm sure like these this is just a 
couple of um cards that were seen at the protest but then to have that rhetoric of you know private land this is our land we want our land back stop trying to regulate us it literally makes no sense the disconnect is so real but you can clearly see the systemic connection and this you know structure of colonialism and how it's not just happening in New Zealand but it's happening globally um, but then to also ignore that history and have this right wing um, fascist rhetoric that's coming up it is actually quite scary and it's the same system that's holding down the co-papa of Black Lives Matter and Free Palestine and um, you know land back and it's just insane so I yeah I just encourage everyone to be very critical and um, try to make yeah try to make those connections because they are definitely there and you know and just having the show and being in the space I get asked all the time you know how can I be a better ally and I think for everyone even if you know you 1010% rep your co-papa go out there and find those connections because they are there and once you find those connections stand in solidarity we are powerful when we work together when we absolutely work together um and so yeah that that has been playing on my mind heavily and I think one part or one element of finding those connections is to also read up on your history um and not just opening up the history books and and finding it in textbooks or documentaries there are other ways to find find out histories and it can be through having a yarn with someone it can be through um art or dance or songs um it doesn't have to be just reading a book or um reading the wikipedia page um we need to kind of get out of that um idea that stories can only be told by one person and only be told in a particular way like in my culture um we're oral there is a very big oral storytelling tradition and um and I think I've kind of missed out on that you know growing up in New Zealand um but that's fine because I know one of these days I will make it back to the motherland and I'm slowly trying to have those conversations with my family now but that's how you would learn your history that's how would you would learn about your people and the land and what your ancestors ancestors sorry had to go through and um who you are is by sitting down and just talking and you'd listen to the elders and just soak up all of these stories and it's so powerful and I think because I didn't have that growing up I didn't really know the history of my people um in Somalia but also just in Africa in general and the only stories that I did have about Africa was what was said around me that was yeah my education of the history and what I read in the textbooks and what um teachers would say and what the media would say and what you know I would be told here in the west about Africa and so I definitely internalize those stories and internalize that racism and I thought 
you know, I used to think, or young Ama used to think that Africa was very backwards and um, didn't under understand technology or didn't have the privilege of technology and would never be able to have that knowledge. And the West was superior in that sense. And all Africa is is just poor, hungry people who are constantly fighting um, like savages or something because that's literally what I got told and now that I'm saying this out loud like it literally breaks my heart hearing that because you know that story puts all of the onus on Africans when I had no idea that there were these I didn't understand um, colonialism <laughs> and I didn't understand all the, the damages that are be- that happened to a country because of colonialism um, but anyways because I didn't understand that history of Africa I absolutely fell into the stereotypes and absolutely internalised that racism and how can you be a better ally how can you um stand stand in the co-papa as well as for the co-papa when you don't have that history or that understanding and I think history provides us that opportunity to a make those connections b realize that stories when you're not told by the powerful or the majority you can see a wider perspective of what's actually going on um and so you know since I've decolonized my mind and you know I'm taking the time out to learn the history I realized that no Africa is not backwards um we are not savages we are not poor hungry people what's happened is we are trying to get back on our feet after slavery and colonialism and famine and all these horrible things like we are not the the victims and you know Africa she is beautiful and she is smart and she is intelligent and she has all of these natural resources um hence the reason why we were targeted um by the west because they wanted to have access to those resources um but i think knowing history is so important and when i think about this rhetoric that i see kind of growing in New Zealand to be honest like it not hasn't just been this recent farmers protest that's made me realize that this rhetoric is on the rise um but when I think about this rhetoric I'm like I wonder if these people actually have an idea about the true history of New Zealand and you know whose land we're standing on and how things came to be um how they are now um i really do wonder because i think if you understood that that history um there would be entirely different perspective on things and i know some of you tuning in understand that history already and want to do more and 
you know, do the work and be better. And yeah, history is one of the ways of finding those connections, but everything is connected. And if only we realized how connected everything was, oh goodness, just imagine how um, powerful we would be. And, you know, figuring out those connections and having those conversations, um, it's a lot of work, but, you know, we owe it to ourselves to do that work. And if you are doing that work because you directly experience what's going on, that is, you, you know, there is no, you're under that obligation to know better and do better because you don't want to, any part of the system anymore but if you have the privilege of learning about it rather than experiencing it gosh that is yeah got that is something else um but of course that kind of privilege there's going to be those uncomfortable feelings of shame and guilt but we owe it to ourselves to push through those emotions and use those emotions as a tool for activism rather than using it to enable us to kind of freeze in fear and inaction and I think one of the scariest things about this shame and this guilt is then making mistakes because it feels like making those mistakes reinforces that idea that oh I've made a mistake I'm part of the problem I'm a bad person etc etc but no that's not the we need to reframe that association and just have it as mistakes are just mistakes and you either learn from it and do better or you just sit in it and do nothing um and we cannot afford to do nothing. So just giving ourselves permission to realize that mistakes are sometimes just that. Um, and the next thing that I wanted to talk about and something that, yeah, I've been thinking about a lot recently, especially talking to um, my girlfriends the past couple of days, um, talking about race and um, stereotypes and trying to survive in the structure when it serves the majority and then this word code switching came up and I was like hmm I think that sounds like um, a bit of me so the term code switching actually came from um, a linguistic point of view so the sorry I just need to pull up my notes because I don't remember off by heart where the term actually came from um so yes ling linguists they studied code switching and code switching is more for people initially more for people who spoke at least two languages or more and how they would um, change their language, their way they would speak, their demeanor, their vernacular, depending on which culture of that language they were interacting with at that time. And the motivations for code switching is, you know, to fit in better and to, you know, mask your uh, proficiency in the other language. 
um, you know, just to fit into the um, to fit into wherever that person is at that time. And then later on, there was another experience of code switching that was picked up by academics and um, by you know your common people outside of academia as well and it's not just for a linguistic purpose code switching has a racial motivation as well where people will change their vernacular um, depending on which environment they're in to fit in the most and and it's not and I think oh sorry just I've just lost my words oh yes it's come back to me so and it sounds really strange like to not it's not changing who you are to fit in it's a performative expression it's a defense mechanism um it's a tool that helps those who are not part of the majority to thrive and it's something that I absolutely did um and I actually had no idea that I did do that until much later on in my 20s gosh it makes it sound like I'm really old like I'm still in my 20s but anyways <laughs> wasn't until yeah up until recently where I decided where I noticed that I did do this, you know, growing up and being one of the very few, not just black people, but people of color in the classroom setting, um, or just it seems like anywhere where I went, if it wasn't the mosque or if it wasn't a community event, I'm absolutely code switched because I thought that would be um, understood as more professional and I think I was really um aware or subconsciously really aware of that stereotype of like the angry black girl and so I always always wanted to be soft and demure and to be um and to stay as far away as I could from that angry black woman stereotype um but then you know when I was with people of similar background I would kind of code switch back again and kind of tone down my whiteness um, because not that I well I think when I was younger I was insecure and I really wanted to fit in but it wasn't because I wanted to fit in because I thought being white was better for what I think when I was really young I did but once I kind of started to love myself a little bit more and gain that confidence in who I was and where I've come from it wasn't me trying to fit in more because I thought white was better it was to protect myself I knew that I would do better at school and I would um, be uh, well received if I kind of toned turned up my whiteness and you know if if I wasn't a Muslim and if I, oh sorry, if I didn't wear the hijab, because you can still be Muslim and not wear the hijab. If I didn't wear my hijab, I think I absolutely would have straightened my hair all the time because having curly hair is not associated with um, being white. And so I think I definitely would have um, straightened my hair as part of that code switching. And I would have I avoided any kind of slang like the plague because I wanted to show that I knew 
proper English and you can't see me right now, but I'm doing air quotes around proper English. Um, like I really wanted to tone down my blackness. So if I listen to R&B music, I'd, I'd only talk about if I was hanging out with my black friends, but never with my white. And I was just so aware of these things. And, um, yeah, I would absolutely, um, change, not change who I am, but change my demeanor and my language um and the slang that I would use depending on who I was because I just wanted to thrive better and now that I think back on it I'm I just think that's so damaging that if you're not part of the majority you have to essentially change who you are at the in that moment in that time or present or how you present yourself you have to change to fit in better which is crazy um and i think one of the misconceptions about code switching is that you're not calling upon an 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 authentic version of yourself but it just relies on heavy emphasis on certain aspects of our identity to replace others depending on where we are what the circumstances are um which is so, yeah, insane. And I think when we code switch, yes, it's a defense mechanism, but why do we have to be in an environment where people feel like they have to defend themselves in such a way? Like, imagine if, if, you know, you were approached by the police and you were of color you wouldn't have to suddenly stand straighter and talk in a way that made you less threatening and imagine if you could just wear your natural hair to work and it wouldn't be considered um messy or kinky or less professional than someone who naturally has straight hair um yeah, I've just realized, yeah, code switching is so damaging. But I think the fear of those who do code switch, if they were to stop doing it as an act of defiance, you know, the our structures and our systems and our attitude is just not there yet to allow people to not code switch. Um, so by not code switching, it would be a detriment to themselves. And you know what? I think that is a very personal choice. You can't tell someone what they can and can't do and what they feel comfortable doing. But I hope that we work towards a society where there is an environment where people can bring all aspects of their identity and they wouldn't have to code switch no matter where they go because it is reverse as well like I would code switch and really tone down my whiteness when I um was hanging out with my black friends because I didn't want to be seen as um thinking I was above anyone else um because there definitely is this inferior complex that happens in well I'm just going to specifically speak to the Somali community, because I can't speak for all, you know, POC communities, but definitely in the Somali community, there's this sense of that victim 
mindset, you know, everyone's racist and all these white folks think they're they're better than us and it's quite damaging. So yeah, I wouldn't want that association. So I'd most definitely tone down my whiteness when I was with my um, black friends. And I think even now I just bring all aspects of my identity with myself. And I know, I know that I'm considered more whitewashed compared to other Somali kids. Um, But I'm proud of who I am. I'm proud of my culture. I know my values and what's important to me. Um, So I'm not going to be shamed into being less than who I authentically am. Um, But I wish no matter where I went, what the circumstances were, what the environment was, that I could just bring all of myself. And... Like, I know that there will be people out there listening to this and they'll have experiences of code switching as well. And, yeah, I just wonder how we can take the onus of individuals and, yeah, contribute to an environment where people feel like they don't have to code switch and they can bring all of themselves um, into a space. And I think code switching, it's not just about that language perspective. It's not just about that racial perspective. Um but it also can apply to identity in terms of gender identity, sexual identity. Um, You know, I've spoken about this concept with um, some of my friends who identify as being as part of the queer community and there are places where where it's so straight. You know, one of my friends said it's so suffocating, the straightness that I, when I wasn't confident with my sexuality, I absolutely turned down the queerness, the gayness, as they said, um, just so, you know, I could protect myself and um, not feel like an outsider at work. So, And I think if people are code switching, you know, there's definitely a reason why they're code switching. And how can we be more accepting and open and tolerant to help those who feel like they normally can't take all aspects of their personality to every single environment that they're in? Um, I think, yeah, it is very... Yeah, it is to have a place or to have environments where people don't have to code switch is a very special thing and something that we should um, strive for. And I just want to talk about stereotypes just for the last couple of minutes of the show and specifically that angry black girl stereotype that is very prevalent. And I think I might have, might have spoken about it before on the show, but you know, since the Black Lives Matter movement really took off last year in 2020, you know, we've just continuously been having these ongoing conversations about race and and it's happening, I see it happening here in New Zealand and on a global sense, you know, there's always more that we could be doing. But I think since that initial um wave since 2020 it had definitely has dropped down but there's been this ongoing conversation and 
every single time I I talk about race and show any kind of emotion and I've spoken about this with my other um black girlfriends and they've also kind of commented on something similar you know whenever they show any kind of emotion it always goes back to that angry black girl stereotype and I think one of the most damaging things about that stereotype is that it doesn't allow for softness it doesn't allow for vulnerability like a black girl always has to be angry and always has to be shouting at the top of her lungs at the world for something and any kind of emotion it's only limited to this container that is anger and nothing else and I think because there's that angry black girl stereotype as well there's that assumption that black girls don't need protection black girls don't need help black girls cannot be vulnerable they cannot be soft they cannot take rest they always have to be um looking after everyone and that is absolutely so damaging because everyone has ability or should be able to feel vulnerable and everyone should feel soft and everyone should be taken care of but there's this false illusion of not needing anyone and not needing protection and not needing any help because all black women are angry black women and I think that is so damaging and it just makes me think about when Wad was on the show and she was talking about um, her experience um, and her activism journey with being a part of Free Palestine and how she had this whole speech and she touched upon so many things but um, in the media she was just reduced to being an angry Arab woman and I was like Oh, out of all of the feelings that Waj would have expressed, that was the only one that was really reported. And again, when these opportunities just only exaggerate the anger but nothing else, it just solidifies the stereotype even more. And it's honestly so damaging. I wish that we could just be... Well, first of all, of course we're going to get angry about things. Like, nothing about the situation right now would bring about any joy. I mean, especially in America, you know, black people are getting killed by the police. And these lives are just, you know, the way that the government responds and the society responds. It's as if... You know, these black lives just don't even matter. And in New Zealand, you know, it's not just um, black people, but what's happening to our tangata whenua, our indigenous people, the first people of this nation, um, what's happening to our Muslim community, what's happening to our trans community, what's happening to women. You know, there's so much that needs to be changed and so many conversations that we need to have here in New Zealand. And of course, lots of different emotions are going to arise and anger is going to be one of them. Um, But don't use emotions as a bad thing against 
people and I'm kind of going off on a tangent here but that also reminds me of that stereotype that you know women are emotional and that association is always a negative thing right because women are so um emotional um they can never be rational never make decisions never about never think about things never think about things properly um but why do we see emotions as a weakness i think emotions are very telling about the things that we want to uh, you know very telling of the things that we care about and very telling of the things that we should change like what makes us happy what makes us mad what makes us sad um they're all very valid things and when you list out the things that you do get emotional about you can connect it to a bigger societal problem you can connect it to a bigger structure so Absolutely, I embrace emotions and all of them. I think they are very much needed. We cannot be robotic. Um, emotions are part of how we engage with this world and experience this world. They're not a bad thing. I think if we listen to them um, and give them the space, they will lead us to the conversations and the solutions that we need. Um, but we always have this association that they're a weakness, and particularly that association is closely tied with women and how women are always emotional and men aren't which is also very damaging for our boys and our men because they grow up thinking that they cannot be emotional because if they are emotional they'll be like their their mothers and their sisters and their daughters and their girlfriends who apparently when they are emotional cannot think the way that men can do and cannot fix things the way men can do so you can see how it's damaging for just basically everyone involved um, but I think particularly that stereotype of angry black woman is even more damaging because, you know, black women, uh, ex- you know, experience racism and know what it, what it looks like and racism in all of its forms, the casual to the structural to the institutionalized. Um, so, you know, by being a black woman there is this um obligation essentially because the identity of a black woman is so politicized there is this obligation almost to to fight back and to 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 do better um not just for yourself but for your community to have that angry black girl stereotype is just so damaging like we are more than that we can be soft and we can be vulnerable and we need help sometimes and um we experience all of these other emotions and independence doesn't mean that we want to be by ourselves and yeah you can see how that's also damaging for not just the angry black girl stereotype but the emotions a bad stereotype how that feeds into how our boys and girls interact with emotions and how that translates into when they become adults so embrace your emotions y'all and on that note i'm going to um end this episode and yeah keep looking for those connections um keep learning that history and feel all the feels because emotions are just so important um take care and see you the next time Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Headscarfs and Good Yarns. To keep spinning the yarns, let us know your thoughts. 
You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Hitscarfs and Good Yarns or email us at hitscarfsandgoodyarn at gmail.com. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.